Uh, you can turn in your copy of the scriptures to 1 Peter chapter 1. Stepping out of our study through the book of Leviticus, just going to revel here for a little bit in the living hope we find here in 1 Peter. Uh, you can listen and follow along as I read uh, 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by, God, by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is God's word. Would you pray with me again briefly? Lord, would you graciously by your spirit sink this hope down deeply into our hearts? Each day we are tempted to hope in what this world offers, and yet we know from your word that this world is passing away, and you hold out to us a hope here, a living hope. Lord, would you encourage us, build us up, nourish us again in the truth of the gospel and the hope that we have in the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, glorify yourself, glorify your name, exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, in our hearts and in this church. We pray that you would do it now through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, just about 20 years before the birth of Christ, there was a Roman poet named Horace. And he wrote these words. While we're talking, envious time is fleeing. Pluck the day. Put no trust in the future. That phrase, pluck the day, is the famous Latin phrase, carpe diem. Have you heard of carpe diem? Typically, it gets translated as seize the day. Uh, but Horace pictures every day like a ripened fruit, ready to be plucked and eaten. And if you don't pluck it and eat it when it's ripe, the next day you'll come back and find that it's rotten and you've missed your chance. He says, put no trust in the future. If you wait until tomorrow... It will be gone. The fruit will be rotten and you'll have lost your 
opportunity forever. In other words, he says, grasp for every fleeting pleasure this life presents because when envious time has finally fled away, there will be nothing left. The Old Testament records it this way from uh, some ungodly folk who write and say, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I've heard that before. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, that's exactly how you should be living your life. That's exactly right. If there is no resurrection, carpe diem is exactly right. Your only hope is here. In the the fleeting pleasures that this world has to offer you. Eventually, death will violently rip them from you. And so your best course of action is is to get them, acquire them as much and as often as you can because everyone knows that death never comes on schedule. But, but, if there is a resurrection, if if Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, and then three days later really got up from the grave... And if everyone who is united to him by faith will also, by virtue of their union with him, experience a glorious resurrection like his unto eternal life, that changes everything. That changes absolutely everything. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you this morning that because the tomb is empty, Because the tomb is empty, because death could not hold him, because right now your Savior lives, you have a living hope. You have a living hope, a hope that makes the greatest pleasures and the joys that this world can offer seem like, in comparison, just a trip to the dentist. I don't know, maybe there's some weirdos out there that like the dentist. I hate the dentist. I don't like the dentist. This morning, our text reminds us of three very simple and yet profound truths about this resurrection hope that if you take them into your heart and they become the animating center of your life, it will absolutely change everything. Three simple yet profound truths about this hope. It's real, it's really good, and it's rock solid. You know what I'm saying? It's real, it's really good, and it's rock solid. Let's talk about it. It's real. In the end, the only hope that can change us is one that's real. So Peter comes to us and tells us not just that Christians have a hope, but that they have a living hope, right? It's an alive hope. It's a dynamic, vital, real hope. Now, what do I mean by real? Well, first I mean it's not a fiction, right? 
For so many, the concept of heaven or eternal life sounds like a, like a fantasy or like a fairy tale. But Peter tells us, no, 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 it's real. But, but here's the other thing. While, while maybe uh, some people are willing to entertain the possibility of some kind of heaven as, as being real, they imagine it like some kind of divine atmosphere where we're just like these you know, floating, glowing little orbs that bounce from cloud to cloud, you know, playing harps or whatever. Then Peter again comes to us and says, no, no, no. It's real. Like you can touch it. It's palpable. It's tangible. It's living. It's God's creation restored and renewed. It's a new heaven and it's a new earth. It's an inheritance. Did you see, did you see that word there in, in, in the passage? It's an inheritance. That word is incredibly important in this passage. It's the main word that Peter uses to describe what our hope is. Do you see that? He says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, uh, from the dead to an inheritance. Do you see there in the text? Those two things are parallel to one another. There is our living hope, which is an inheritance. Now, sometimes we talk about the way in which we can inherit abstract things, uh, theoretical things, right? You can inherit uh, a family name, like maybe a good reputation or a bad reputation. You, you could inherit a legacy. You could inherit values. But for Peter's wor- uh, audience, the word inheritance was tactile. It, it, it was tangible. It was goods. It was possessions. It was fortune. It was stuff you can hold in your hands, right? Think back to when God delivered Moses and, and, and his people out of Egypt. You remember? You remember the story of the Exodus? And God comes to his people, and what does he promise them? He promises them an inheritance. And what is the inheritance? Do you remember the inheritance? It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But you, but you know, it wasn't like a symbolic land. It wasn't like a metaphorical land or a, figura- a figurative land. It was a real land. Like God came to them and promised them, I'm really going to pick you up, pull you out of Egypt, bring you through the wilderness, and then give you a real land flowing with milk and honey. It was real land with real soil, with real mountains and real rivers and trees and real boundaries, right? You could feel the leaves on your skin and feel the dirt beneath your toes. When Moses was about to die, if you read at the end of uh, uh, Deuteronomy there, you know that God brings Moses up on a mountaintop. He's getting ready to die. God comes to Moses and says, you're getting ready to go to your fathers. And he brings him up on a mountain and he shows him all the land that he had promised to his people, to deliver them into the land. And of course, you know that that Joshua leads them into the land, and they possess it, right? They, they, They take hold of it. And so now, as Peter writes to the churches throughout Asia Minor, many of which are populated by Jews, he says they have a living hope, which is an inheritance, There's no question they would have imagined something real, something palpable, not a fantasy, and and certainly not sort of the the floaty heaven that maybe some of us think uh, and have come to understand through pop culture or whatever. 
But, but now look how Peter drives it home. He says in verse four that this hope is being kept in heaven for you. He's still using the imagery of, of an inheritance, right? He's saying it's there, right? Your, your hope, your living hope, your inheritance, it's there, it's real. It's being kept in heaven. It's not developing, it's not being pulled together. It, it's there right now in heaven, like, like a massive fortune. When we think about inheritance, as we think about being born into a family, there's lots of money that someone stands to inherit, right? It's like a massive fortune being held in trust in a bank until you're ready to actually retrieve it. Peter's saying, your hope, your inheritance, it's there, it's real, it's, it's waiting, it's being kept in heaven for you. Well, you say, okay, fine. But it doesn't feel real, though. You're telling me it's real, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel real to me, right? When I look around at the world, it doesn't feel real. When I look at my own life, it doesn't feel real. When I am exhausted and struggling to get through my week, my living hope, this inheritance, it doesn't feel real to me. But let me just say two things. Two things about this sentiment, but it doesn't feel real to me. The first is, is part of the reason it doesn't feel real is because you haven't learned to actually recognize the feelings in the first place. The reason it doesn't feel real to you is because you haven't really learned or been trained to, to, to recognize those feelings in the first place. C.S. Lewis captures this, I think, better than anyone else. You guys know who C.S. Lewis is? The Chronicles of Narnia, right? He captures this better than anyone else. This is what he says. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And then he goes on, he says, he says I'm not speaking of unsuccessful marriages or, or holidays or careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And the chemistry may have been an interesting job. But something has evaded us. He says, even when we, when we look for the best things and get them in this life, still th- th- there's this leftover longing. The thing that we initially longed for evaded us. It sort of evaporated in our hands. Now he goes on to describe two ways to interpret this reality in the, in the wrong way. The first thing he, he, he says is the fool. The fool looks at this this sort of conundrum, the, this longing, this unsatiated longing that we all have. And the fool just says, well, the, the things that I've tried to, to, to satisfy, there's something wrong with them, right? I just need, I need a better wife, a newer wife, a more attractive wife. I need a better vacation, a more expensive vacation, a more luxurious vacation. I need a better job, a higher paying job. If finally I got those things, then I would have the thing that I was longing for. But anyone that, that gets all of the things that he's longing for in this life ultimately knows and can tell you the disappointment of it. But then there's another way that we can go wrong. 
So he, he talks first about the fool, and then he says, the sensible man. So there's the fool and then the sensible man. He says, the sensible man says to himself, we were never meant to have those longings fulfilled after all. He, he, he looks at those desires and those unfulfilled longings, and he says, he, he, he chalks it up to just wishful thinking, to just silliness and, and delusion and naivete. Those are, those are longings that belong to, to younger people who don't really know how life is. It's just adolescent chasing after the wind. Right? Better to lower ex- your expectations and to sort of just settle into a life of reasonable expectations. But the Christian, the Christian knows something that no one else in the world knows. The Christian says, God made me with these longings. God put these longings in me as his image bearer, and God would not have made me with these longings if he didn't intend for them to be fulfilled in some way. And then there's this classic quote from C.S. Lewis that I'm sure many of you know, right? He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, the Christian feels, remember, remember this? I don't, but I don't feel it. The Christian feels the reality of this hope precisely when he feels the disappointment of the world most acutely. Do you see what I'm saying? The Christian feels the reality of this hope precisely when he feels the disappointment of this world most acutely. When he suffers and longs for a life that's free of all pain, he feels the reality of the world to come where death is no more and all sadness flees away. When he's afraid and longs for a life without insecurity and doubt, he feels the reality of a world where everything is as it should be. When he's confronted with injustice and evil and longs for a world without sin and crime and abuse, he feels the reality of a world where all wickedness is driven out and destroyed and there is perfect peace. Part of it is you haven't learned to feel the feelings of this living hope. The Christian knows that every time I experience a longing in this world that is ultimately not satisfied, that what that says to me is that there is a world that is coming where that longing will be satisfied. But here's the second thing. I don't, I don't, but it doesn't feel real to me. The reality of your hope, the realness of it, the reality of your hope is not ultimately dependent on your feelings. In other words, it's real whether you feel like it or not. That's good news. Because <laughs> your feelings go up and down and wax and wax and wane. And you, you, you feel one day uh, the mountaintop and then the valley. And the scriptures come to us and Jesus comes to us and says, listen, this is an objective, concrete fact. It's real whether, you feel, whether you're having a good day or a bad day. It's real whether you feel it or not. Look at... Uh, uh, 
our passage here, it says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You, you see what Peter is saying. He's saying the instrument by which your hope has come to you is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what you need to know is that before the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a projection of your, of your future and what it will be like, it's the proclamation of a fact. Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay, before the resurrection is a prediction, before it's a projection, right? In Christ, we're going to experience a glorious resurrection like Christ, like his. But before it's a projection of your future, it's the proclamation of a real, concrete, objective, historical fact. It's stone cold, concrete, regardless of what your feelings say. You see, when Peter says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that you have this hope, he's saying that the fact of your hope, the fact of your hope, the realness of it, the objectivity of it is tied and dependent on the fact that Jesus is not dead, but that he's risen from the grave. In other words, you have a living hope because you have a living Savior. And listen, you need to know that that Peter was writing to people who had eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, right? If you're here and all this just sounds too outlandish, like some made-up fairy tale, just consider how the apostles taught the resurrection. I know I've shared this with you before, but listen again. When Paul writes to the Corinthians about the resurrection, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, why does he add that little detail? Why does he add that little detail? Some are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He appeared to 500 people. Some of them are still alive. And some have fallen asleep. It's an invitation to investigate. Christianity is not based on a blind faith in some, uh, you know, declaration that some man 2,000 years ago died and rose from the dead. No, it's based on historical, reliable fact. He says, 500 people, he appeared to 500 people. Some of them are alive. Go ask them, go talk to them. They saw him die, then he was alive again. If I, listen, in any courtroom in this country, any courtroom in this country, you, you, you roll 500 witnesses in, uh, on, on the stand and they all testify to the same event happening. There's no judge and there's no jury in this country that would say, yeah, we're not sure. Eh, maybe, maybe not. The 500 people that saw him rise from the dead. Now maybe you've never really reckoned with the New Testament claims, but, but here's one thing you can't do without any, one thing you can't do uh, with any shred of intellectual honesty, right? You can't dismiss Christianity as a fairy tale. You can't. The historical data won't allow you to do it. And listen, if, if, if you were in Christ this morning, you know The reality of Christ's resurrection. And this is Peter's point. If Christ really died, and if he really rose again, if he really died and he really rose again, then your hope is real. Then your hope is real. because Not because of how you feel about it, 
Not because of your experience. It's real because he's alive. It's real because right now, he's a living Savior, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So it's real. I wish I could just press that down into your heart. It's real. It's real. It's not made up. It's real. I hate movies that don't have happy endings. I, now, I know there's artistic value to it. I want my movies to have a happy ending. But here's the thing. We, 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 we almost think about happy endings like they're, like they're, you know, it's like wishful thinking. Like we, we know, when we see the movies with happy, well, we know that's not really how life is. Right? And, and for good reason, because that's not largely our experience. We experience very few happy endings in this life. And that's part of what makes it hard to believe. But brothers and sisters, the gospel holds out to us the ultimate happy ending. And do you know, see, this is another C.S. Lewis. I'm going to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. But basically he says, every happy ending in every story is really just a little whisper of the ultimate happy ending. That that happy ending has been embedded into our hearts and into our souls. The longing for resolution, the longing for happy ending has been embedded into our hearts by God who, who, who promises us the ultimate happy ending. And brothers and sisters, it's real. It's real. But it's also really, really good. Maybe I've convinced you that the Christian hope is, is real, but it's only good news if the, if the hope is really good, right? It wouldn't be like, hey, guys, it's real, and it's really awful, right? That would not be good news for you. But praise God, our hope isn't just good. It's, it's really good. It's so good that Peter struggles to describe it. You see that here in our text? Verse 3, it says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So listen, here's the trouble. How do you describe the indescribable? Far and away, when the New Testament talks about our inheritance, so you, if you do just like a, a, a preliminary search of inheritance in the New Testament, you'll, you'll hear it talked about in these terms. We inherit the kingdom of God, and we inherit eternal life. And we're like, great, what's that? You know, what, how, what, what, how do I think about that? What's that going to be like? And maybe you'll think that this is some kind of cop-out, but the Bible's answer is that the full glory and the full goodness of what awaits us is beyond our comprehension. It, it, it would be like trying to help your toddler imagine the fullness of the glory that is the Grand Canyon or the fullness of the glory that is Mount Everest. Right? It, it would be like trying to help their little minds understand how big and vast and beautiful those landmarks are. And, and by the way, the distance between the glory of Mount Everest and the Grand Canyon, uh, the distance between that and, and a toddler's imagination is infinitely smaller than the distance between the hope that awaits us and your imagination. The human language just doesn't have the linguistic power or beauty to do it. So Peter is left trying to tell us what it is and what it's like by telling us, here's what it isn't. Do you see that? He says, it's imperishable. 
In other words, you can't spoil it. You can't ruin it. Isn't this what makes us so cynical? Right, That even when we get good things, we have them for a moment, and they're never as good as we imagine them to be, and then they're gone. Right? You, you, you look forward to vacation all year. I'm sure some, some of you will be able to relate to this. Right? You look forward to vacation all year, all year. You book your trip. You're ready to go. And then when you get there, you know, it pours rain. The, the, the kids are fighting. The attraction is closed. The tour is sold out. Someone has an accident and you have to go to the hospital. Right? You get there and it's, it's never as good as you thought it was going to be. But, e- but even if, but listen, even if it, it, it like lives up to the hype and it's everything you hoped, it comes to an end. Right? It perishes. It goes away. But not this hope. Right? Not this hope. This hope is absolutely everything it's cracked up to be and more. I'll keep going with the vacation thing here. You ever go on vacation and you get there and you think, you know, this doesn't exactly look like the brochure. You're like, I saw the brochure and this looked amazing and I can see where they took the pictures. I can see it, but it's not exactly the same as what I thought. See, but Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity is the exact opposite. Christianity is like, Peter's trying to give us the brochure, and he's like, this doesn't, guys, this just doesn't capture it. I don't know what to tell you. There's no way I can put in the brochure how amazing and how good and how glorious this thing is. And when you finally possess it, nothing can spoil it, right? There's no trap doors. There's no hidden fees. It's better than you could have ever imagined, and nothing will ever spoil it forever. He says it's undefiled, right? You, you can't corrupt it. In other words, and this is what Peter's saying, there's no sin. There's no sin. This, in part, is why it's more and better than you could possibly imagine. And it's why it's so hard for us to imagine it, right? We can't imagine a world without corruption and without sin, right? Trying to imagine a world without sin is for us trying to imagine, like, words without letters, right? It's impossible for us to do it. But the Christian hope is of a world where sin and all of its effects have been forever and completely eradicated. Nothing impure can ever reside there. There's only love and joy and kindness and truth. There's no greed, no arrogance, no abuse, no deceit, no fear. But just as when sin entered into the world, it plunged the natural world into chaos and darkness, so the redemption of the world Right? The resurrection of the world to a new heaven and a new earth will mean the recovery of a perfect natural order where there's no sickness and no disease and no natural disasters and no debt and no danger and no death. There's only vitality and beauty and fulfillment and peace. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading. It's unfading. It never comes to an end, but only continues in ever-increasing measure. This is the great catch-22 of longing and desire, isn't it? Do you remember the last time you were really hungry and, and, and you were anticipating like a really good meal? Like maybe tonight you were just looking forward to some, like just like a bang-in Easter dinner. Like, I don't know, you've got whatever it is. You've got ham and 
sweet potatoes and you got the whole thing. And, you, and so you, you know, you're hungry and all day and then, you, and then you finally get there and you make the plate and you like, you know, got all your stuff and, and there it is in all its glory, like your plate. And then you take that first bite and it's heavenly. It's amazing. But that second bite is never as good as the first one, is it? That, that's the catch-22 of longing and desire. The very moment that we possess the thing that we long for, our enjoyment in it begins to fade. It begins to go away. Right? The first, <laughs> the first sip of, I can't say, I don't drink coffee, but I've heard this. The first sip of coffee is always the best. For, I, I, I'm like seltzer water. You get a nice crisp seltzer. The first sip of seltzer, the rest of the seltzer, the rest of the can, you know, can, it's like it's good. But it's not as good as the first sip. The first bite of a piece of pizza is always the best, right? The first time you go on a roller coaster is always the best. Second ride's never as good as the first one. The first time you see a movie is always the best one. As soon as we possess the thing we're longing for, and instantly our enjoyment in it begins to fade. And yet Peter says the hope of every Christian is in a kingdom and a world that never fades. It never fades. It never diminishes. It just gets better and better and better and better. And then you turn around and you're like, can this thing get better? And Jesus is like, yep, watch this. It's going to get better. Look, I, I can't, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you C.S. Lewis overload today, but I don't know. There's no, I, he just speaks so good on, on hope and heaven and this is, you guys ever read through the Chronicles of Narnia? Do you, do you remember how it ends? Do you remember how the Chronicles of Narnia end? L- listen. It says, and has he spoke. He no longer looked to them like a lion. This Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, when, when you close your eyes in death, you've just closed your eyes on the cover page. Then you get to begin the real story when every chapter is better than the one before. Our inheritance, the fullness of God's kingdom, eternal life will be imperishable undefiled and unfading. And yet I'm reminded of this quote by John Newton. You know what John Newton said? He said, even a palace is a dungeon without God. You see, the the Christian knows that all of this, the promise of a world that cannot be spoiled or corrupted or diminished is only achievable and it's only alluring if God himself is there. Right, If at the, the pulsing center of this hope is God himself, the source of all life and all goodness and all power. And that's exactly what we find. Right, The main, the main clause of this passage, actually, right, we're focusing in on the living hope, but the main clause of this uh, passage is this. Blessed be uh, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the rest is the explanation as to why God is worthy of all praise and blessing. And so the whole point is that the great object, the great goal, the, 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 to finally possess our hope is to have the object of our deepest praise. Heaven will be heaven because when we finally possess, when we finally arrive and possess there, what we will possess is the thing that we were ultimately made for, the thing that our souls have been longing for most deeply, and that is unfettered loving relationship with God. Heaven will be pure because God is pure. Heaven will be truth because God is truth. Heaven will be joy because God is joy. You see, Peter helps us to understand that our hope is intrinsically bound up with our worship. Or here's how Paul puts it in in Titus. He says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your hope will be found in the appearing of the glory of God when your heart finally has the, what it longs for, which is God himself. So listen, it's real. It's going to be really good. And lastly, it's rock solid. It's, it's secure. It's certain. A lot of times when you use that word hope, we think of it as like wishful thinking. Right? I, you know, fingers crossed, I hope. But that, that, that's totally antithetical to the biblical, to the Bible's understanding of hope. No, the Bible's understanding of hope is it's a rock solid, certain hope. And everyone knows that the only thing worse than not giving a child a balloon is giving a child a balloon only to have the wind snatch it up out of their hands and have them stand by and watch helplessly as it floats away forever. And the only way for you to live in the joy of this hope that I've been expressing to you, that the Bible holds out for us, is if you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you can never lose it. It's the only way you can live in the joy of it. And that's exactly what we learn. For everyone that has been united to Christ by faith, their hope is unalterably secure. In Christ, we have a hope that can never be lost. Right? Look at our passage again. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First, listen, you can't lose it. You can't lose it because it was given to you at first by God's grace. You, you didn't secure it. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it. It was given to you as a gift. And if it was given to you by God, you can't lose it. This is what makes, uh, by the way, the, the gospel so uh, offensive to the world and yet beautiful to his saints at the same time. It's offensive to the world because God comes to us and says, there's nothing you can do to earn this hope. Right? All your striving, all your works, all your deeds can never win your salvation. The gospel itself reminds us that our entire lives have been a repudiation and a rejection of this hope. Right? We've gone our own, our own way. We haven't lived as those who hope for God, but we've tried to pluck the day like Horace. To sap every ounce of happiness out of the fleeting pleasures this world offers. We've lived just like our parents. Right, This goes all the way back to the garden. We live just like our parents Adam and Eve, who saw that the fruit was good to eat and delightful to the eyes, and took and ate. And so what we and what you and what I deserve is that we have all hope snatched away from us forever. 
One theologian put it this way. He said, hell begins where hope ends. Hell begins where hope ends. It's an offense to the world because the gospel destroys every notion that you're okay, that you've just made a, a couple mistakes, right? It says, in and of yourself, you have no hope. It, it destroys every notion that you can do enough to earn your way. It says, the only way to have this hope, the only way to possess this hope, is to abandon all hope of earning it on your own. To abandon all sense of trying to, to win it but to throw yourself on the mercy of God. And here's why it's so beautiful to the saints, because they know it's precisely when I see my own unworthiness and my own hopelessness that God comes to me in Christ and makes me worthy graciously and mercifully in Jesus as a gift so that my hope is not dependent on me. So that my hope is not dependent on me, but so that it's dependent on him and him entirely. Look, let me show you three things briefly. The, the, in this passage, you see the ground of our hope, the cause of our hope, and the instrument of our hope. Right? What is the ground of our hope? He says, according to his mercy. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation. Why do we have this hope? Because of the mercy of God. Not because you're lovely, not because you're special, not because you're powerful or knowledgeable, but because he is merciful, because he is rich in mercy. And what is, what is the cause of our hope? Our, our text says he, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. The, he's picking up that idea of inheritance again there. Right? Think about the way in which you, you're born into a family and so are, are, are heirs to a particular inheritance. Right? He says, you've been born to a living hope, into a living hope, into an inheritance. Now look, let me ask you this question. Who here caused their own birth? Anyone here say that they contributed anything to your coming into the world? No. And so, listen, so it is with Christ. So it is with God who is merciful. He is the one who causes us to be born again. Not by our own doing. It's dependent on his work. And because it's dependent on him, you listen, if it's dependent on him, you can know your hope is secure. You can know it's, it's, you have it. You can't lose it. But look also at the instrument. Right, the ground that caused the instrument, the instrument. What is, it? What is the, the channel? How does our, our, our hope come to us? It comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because the one who is hope itself came into the world and was willingly crushed into dust. Because in the garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed to his father, he willingly allowed his heart to be pierced by absolute hopelessness. In the garden, God held out to his son the cup of divine wrath for sin. And, and on the cross, so we celebrated on Good Friday, on, on, on the cross, he drank the cup down to the bottom so that he could say, it's finished. Right? He bore all the hopelessness. He bore all the judgment, all the penalty for your sin unto death. And the glory of Resurrection Sunday and the glory of every Sunday is that he did not remain dead, right? Our hope did not die when Christ died. 
No, our hope was confirmed and established when on the third day he rose again from the grave, victorious over all of our enemies, over sin, over death, over hell, over Satan, over all hopelessness and fear, right? Look, God held out hopelessness to Jesus so he could hold out hope to you. He held out hell to Jesus so that through his life, death, and resurrection, he could hold out heaven to you. You see? It's by grace. It's by grace, and if it's by grace, then you can't lose it. But here's the other thing, right? It's not dependent on you to get it, but Peter tells us it's also not dependent on you to keep it. It's not dependent on you to get it, but it's not dependent on you to keep it. The same God who is keeping your inheritance for you in heaven is also keeping you for your inheritance. You see? The same God who's keeping your inheritance for you is keeping you for your inheritance. You can't lose it because God will never lose you. Look at verse 5. It says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That word guarded there literally literally refers to protective custody, like like a prison guard. God is pictured as a guard vigilantly standing by you at all time to ensure that you are kept and preserved for the hope laid up for you in heaven. Brothers and sisters, in in every season and in every change of life, through all the, the trial and through all the hardship and suffering, you can be sure that God is wisely keeping and preserving you for your hope. There is nothing he will not do to preserve you for this, your greatest good. In whatever you face, remember, it comes to you by the wise and powerful hand of God who is lovingly doing all that is necessary to keep you for this hope. And see how he keeps you. He keeps you by faith. You are being guarded through faith. Faith, which is itself a gift that he gives. You see, even in his keeping, it is by faith so that we are not depending on ourselves, but on him. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And what are, as we close here, what are the implications of this? A, A real hope, a really good hope and a rock solid hope. What are the implications of that? Oh man, we got, I don't have, let, we have, there, listen, when you're sitting at the Easter dinner tonight or you're having lunch, you just start thinking about the implications of your resurrection hope. Let me just give you three. The first one is you don't have to live with a fear of missing out. I, t- I feel like I talk to so many people and it's like they're living their lives like a pack of dogs trying to get the last piece of flesh off a bone right? They feel like their life is slipping out of their hands. It's the, it's the pluck the day thing, right? And so constantly they're, 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 they're afraid that they're going to lose out, that they're going to miss out on things. But you know what the resurrection hope gives to us? Resurrection hope means that you can actually enjoy good gifts that God gives you because you're not trying to get out of it all of it, like a hope and a promise that it can never fulfill, right? The life of let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You can't, how can you enjoy that food and that drink? You can't. But gospel hope, resurrection and hope is just the opposite. It says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we live. 
And listen, when you know tomorrow we live, you, get, you can actually enjoy the food. You can actually enjoy the drink because you're not putting your hope in it. So you don't have to live with a fear of missing out. You can serve freely. You can serve freely. You know, there's a lot of people that think that, um, you know, people that, you know, are, are thinking about heaven all the time, they're just like not productive. They're just, you know, got their head in the clouds or whatever. And uh, what you see throughout church history is the people that were most focused on heaven were the most productive, the most useful, the most of service to the church and to the world. One more C.S. Lewis quote. You know, he says, he says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at her earth and you'll get neither. It's the point. Right? You aim at heaven, you, you, you set your mind on things above or not on, earth, uh, not on things below, and what you'll find is that you're absolutely freed to serve and love with reckless abandon because your hope's not here. You see? You don't have to fear missing out. You can serve free, freely. And the last thing is you can suffer well. You can suffer well. Glory is coming. It's ready to be revealed. In, in every little ounce of suffering... What do you feel? You feel, it goes back, it's real. You feel again the reality of a world to come. And so you are anchored, bolstered, strengthened in the midst of suffering to long for glory all the more and to press on until that day. You can suffer well. So if you're here and, you, and, 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 you're, and you're not yet trusting Christ, my question to you is, do you have this hope? Now, you, you worship the thing that you hope in. That's how, that's how you know what your, really, your real God is. Ask the question, what is the thing that I, that I think if I just have it, my life will be better? Whatever that thing is, that's your God. And what I'm asking you is, if you, if you finally get that thing, when it dies, is it just going to turn to ash in your hands? If it is, consider the resurrection. Consider the living hope that Christ holds out to you. If you have not put your faith in Christ, right, come to him today as your living Savior. Make him your hope, and you will have this living hope. He's promised that all who come to him in faith will have the hope of eternal life. But if you're here and you are trusting in, in Christ, as I trust many of you are, rejoice. Right? Rejoice in the hope to come. If you are in Christ, listen to me, if you are in Christ, I don't care what happens today, I don't care what has happened, I don't care what happens this week, I don't care what happens six months. If you are in Christ, your best days are always ahead of you. Your best days are always ahead of you. The Christian can always say that. Your best days are always ahead of you. You have a living hope because you have a living Savior. Brothers and sisters, can we do this one more time? He is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the living hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that it's real. And we, we, we struggle sometimes to, to feel the reality of it. And, and, and we are thankful again that it's not based on our feelings, but we can go to the cross and we can go to the empty tomb and we can see there that we have resurrection hope, that as sure as Christ died and rose from the, from the grave, so sure will we be resurrected to eternal glory. Lord, strengthen us in this hope. 
cause us to live lives of, of service and reckless abandon. Help us to suffer well. Help us not to try and wring every ounce of pleasure out of this life, but to look to you and, and, and to enjoy the things that you give us, but, but not putting our hope in them because our hope is in you. Lord, and as we live this way, I think of how Peter goes on in his epistle. He says it's this hope that will cause people to come to us and ask to give an account for the hope that we have. Lord, we pray that many, as we live in light of this hope, would come seeking and looking to find the hope that we have in Christ and that you would draw many to yourself through the proclamation of your gospel. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.